Good morning and uh, welcome. We uh, very much thank all of you for uh, being here today. Uh, I am uh, John Allison. I'm the president of the Cato Institute. I see a lot of sponsors in the group this morning, and I want to especially thank our sponsors for your support, which makes Cato's work uh, possible. Um, I want to uh, let the sponsors know, and also those of you that are new to Cato, that Cato is doing extremely well. Uh, we're, we're having a record year in terms of sponsorships. Thank you very much for that. We're having a record year in terms of production. Uh, we're having a record year in terms of impact. I think all of that's a subjective judgment, but if you look across uh, what has kind of been called the libertarian moment, Cato is much more visible and much more respected than not very long ago, as is a whole libertarian philosophy. And all of you have made that, uh, made that possible, so thank you. Your organization is doing very well. For those of you that are new to Cato, let me just give you a little overview. Uh, our mission is to create a free and prosperous society based on the principles of individual liberty, free markets, limited government, and peace. We are truly uh, uncompromising advocates of limited government. We want the government to stay out of your pocketbook, but we also want the government to stay out of your bedroom. Um, we think government has a very important role, but a very limited role. The purpose of government, its only purpose, in our view, is to protect individual rights. It's to keep me from using force or fraud to take what you've earned and keep you from using force or fraud to take what I've earned. Um, and in that context, we think government has three important roles. It should, we should have a strong national defense to uh, protect us from bad foreigners. We need a strong, effective police force to protect us from bad neighbors. And we need an effective court system to settle legit, legitimate disputes so we don't have to uh, resort to violence. In our world, there would be 98% less regulations and a much more effective judiciary than we have, an efficient judiciary than we have today. Um, the reason that we think government must be limited is that we delegate a very powerful and scary uh, authority to government. Government has the right to use a gun. They are about force. You know, Walmart can beg you to come buy products, but they can't make you buy products. The government can make you comply with rules and regulations. They can put you in jail and they can shoot you. In fact, throughout history, uh, except for old age and disease, government is the single biggest killer of human beings. Governments have killed hundreds of millions of people uh, throughout history, so they're very dangerous and therefore they need to be very limited in terms of their authority and power. Um, we also uh, view ourselves as the modern classical liberals. We believe we are the defenders of the principles that made America great in a modern context, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Um, we believe that each individual has a fundamental moral right to their own life. Each individual has a moral right to pursue their personal happiness. Each individual has a moral right to the product of their labor. If you produce a lot, you get a lot, including the right to give it away to whoever you want to for whatever reason you want to. And if you think about that moral prerogative, it demands personal responsibility, it rewards self-discipline and rationality, 
And those are foundational principles for a successful free society. Um, as libertarians, we're primarily in the liberty business. <laughs> now, it's interesting, most people across the political spectrum kind of give a nod to liberty, but we take liberty very serious because we understand that the liberty, liberty is a foundation for human flourishing. Human flourishing in an economic sense, and maybe even more important, human flourishing in what I'm going to call a spiritual sense. In an economic sense, in order to be productive, people must be able to think for themselves. They must be able to think independently and pursue their own conclusions for their thinking from their thinking process. If somebody forces you to act like two plus two is five, you literally cannot think. And many, most, government rules and regulations force people to act like two plus two is five. In addition, all human progress, by definition, is based on creativity and innovation. Because unless somebody does something better, there can be no progress. And anything better is going to be different. To be creative, to be, in, to, to be innovative, you must be an independent thinker. People that think like the crowd cannot be innovative, cannot be creative, and cannot contribute to human progress. That is why entrepreneurs are so important. We have a lot of entrepreneurs. A huge percentage of Cato's sponsors are entrepreneurs. And entrepreneurs take the ideas of scientists and engineers and turn them into reality. Without entrepreneurship, there's no human progress. And what is a characteristic of entrepreneurs? They're independent thinkers. They pursue things that other people don't think will work or other people have not seen. And they're experimenters. For every Google, there's 10,000 failed Googles. And to do that kind of experimentation, to be an independent thinker, you have to be free. You have to have liberty. We published a book about a year and a half ago called Poverty and Progress that looked at human well-being since the evolution of, of Homo sapiens uh, until modern times. And from 250,000 B.C. to the late 1700s, while there was some progress in the quality of life, Life expectancy was basically the same. And then something happened in the late 1700s that transformed the quality of life and life expectancy on this planet, first in Western civilization and now in the rest of the, the world. There was an invention, more important than fire, more important than the wheel. It was the invention of the rule of law, of individual rights, of free markets, of capitalism. And that invention allowed people to pursue their own truths, to experiment, to innovate, and it has created a radical improvement in life expectancy on this planet. Capitalism is the foundation for economic well-being because it allows people to think for themselves and pursue their own truths, to experiment, to learn, and grow. As important as economic well-being is, uh, we believe that liberty is also essential for what I'm going to call spiritual well-being in the sense of the genuine pursuit of happiness. And when I talk about the pursuit of happiness, I'm not talking about having a good time on Friday night, although it's good to have a good time on Friday night. I'm talking about happiness in the Aristotelian sense, a life well lived, blood, sweat, and tears happiness. When you're 80 years old, you can look back and say, man, that was hard, and I'm glad I did it. That kind of happiness has to be earned. You cannot be entitled to be happy. In order to be happy in that kind of context, you have to have goals for yourself, and you have to pursue those goals consistent with your values and your beliefs as a free and independent person. Now, being free doesn't guarantee you will be happy, but if you're not free, guarantees you will not be happy. 
So a liberty is essential for human well-being in the context of the pursuit of happiness. So, you know, libertarians, we kind of get a tough rub that we're cold. We don't support the welfare state. We're not worried about poor people. Nothing could be further from the truth. We are really in the human flourishing business. We understand that liberty is important for physical well-being and it's essential for spiritual well-being. And I think that is very noble work that is only possible with your support. So thank you very much for making Cato a successful organization, and thank you for being here this morning. Thank you. <clears throat> uh, we've got a great uh, program today, uh, it's, and uh, my pleasure to introduce our first speaker, who is Jim Harper who is the Director of Information Policy Studies at CADO. Jim works to adapt law and policy to the unique problems of the information age in areas such as privacy, telecommunications, intellectual property, and security. He was a founding member of the Department of Homeland Security's Data Privacy and Integrity Advisory Committee, and he recently co-edited the book, Terrorizing Ourselves, a U.S. Counterterrorism Policy and Failing and How to Fix It. He's been cited and quoted in numerous print, internet, television, uh, media. He has published a large number of scholarly articles. He's the editor of um, privacilla.org, a web-based think tank devoted exclusively to privacy, and he maintains the online federal spending resource, Washington Watch, if you want to get discouraged and see what they're doing over there. But anyway, uh, Jim holds a JD from the University of California at Hastings College of Law. It's my pleasure to introduce Jim Harper. Jim. Thank you, John. Thanks very much, and thanks to all of you for, for being here today. I, uh, I was going to wait until to start until uh, Kim Kardashian arrived. <laughs> I, uh, I pay enough attention to whatever it is that she does. I figured she would return the favor and pay a little attention to whatever it is I do. Um, that, actually, that actually harkens to an introduction that Ed Crane gave me eight years ago when I was new at Cato. Uh, at, a, at an event in San Francisco, he said, Jim Harper is, a, is one of the nation's top scholars in whatever it is he does. <laughs> and you might, get a, you might get a little bit of flavor of that uh, because I'm going to talk to you in, in, in uh, maybe fairly abstract terms about uh, technology and liberty and the technical and information conditions that affect your liberty. Uh, of course, it's information technology and liberty that I'm going to focus on, not the space program or, or uh, farm implements, fertilizer, that kind of thing. Uh, essentially, the point is this. This is, a, this is a trite saying, but I think it's also very true. Information is power. Uh, we, we Cato scholars, we, we refer to ancient scholars in order to make ourselves seem smarter, but Sir Francis Bacon is credited with the, with the saying, knowledge itself is power. And I think, that's, uh, I think that's very true. Now, I'm talking about power not in the legal sense or the just sense, but raw power, uh, the capacity or ability to direct or influence the behavior of others over the course of events. Your ability to influence the government, the government's ability to influence you. How do the information conditions, how do technological conditions affect the relative powers? So you're probably aware of many ways that the government collects information about you. Uh, they know about your travels through the TSA, and they take a good close look at you when you go to fly. Uh, they use lots of things that, are, that have perfectly good administrative purposes, 
to collect information about you. Your travels on, on toll roads collect information about you. There are others. Uh, your filings with the IRS, which used to be on paper and relatively obscure even, even to the, the tax authorities, are now more available to the tax authorities because they're often in digital formats. And I'm going to talk about that some more. But tax information is very intimate, telling about lots of aspects of your life. Of course, more and more you are tracked when you walk around in a city. Facial recognition will be, will be coming uh, to a state before too long where you'll actually be identified as you, as you pass through a city, perhaps. And of course, we all know about recent controversies where the government is affirmatively collecting information about your communications. Uh, every phone call you make today, uh, the fact of it happening, who you called, who you received calls from, how long the call occurred, that'll be recorded today uh, in databases held by the NSA. And that program still continues years after now we've learned of its, of its uh, uh, existence. What's at the heart of all this, though, uh, is abstraction and digitization. Uh, it's a change in the information circumstances from what we used to live in, where information was mostly analog, to today, where it's mostly digital. I'm going to talk a little bit about abstraction using the illustration of the dog. So we all know what a dog is. And sometime in our primordial history, this character I have on the upper left, we'll call him Bodo, determined that the furry four-legged creature living near, near him should be called a dog. This is a, just sort of an utterance that became familiar to the people in Bodo's clan. Project forward a few thousand years, someone came up with the, the concept of writing, an abstraction on that sound that could be more efficient. With writing, you could record the existence of a dog. You could create memories that were lasting. You could pass along this concept of the dog over time and across space without person-to-person -person communication. Uh, just over the last few hundred years and even in recent decades, abstraction has improved, where on the lower left you see Morse code, and on the lower right you see ASCII or, or uh, binary code, which is basically used by the internet to communicate text. So now this concept of the dog, which I'm using just to illustrate one small concept that is used um, in a multiplicity of ways, the concept of the dog can be rocketed around the world instantaneously, copied an infinite number of times, uh, processed over and over again for a variety of uses. That's all to the good, but it also means that information about you can be copied, can be stored for nearly an inf infinite amount of time, processed, sent around the globe, reprocessed, shared, traded, used. Uh, and that makes a difference in your liberty. This is uh, hardly a, a, an empirical study. But imagine how access to information has changed over the course of history. Uh, organizations are organized, and they've been getting better over time at collecting information that they can use for good purposes and bad. Individuals relatively disorganized, little doing a little less well. But since the advent of digitization, abstraction of information about you and your life, organizations, and we're especially interested in, in governments because of their unique power, as John said, to use the gun, their capacity to, to, to uh, acquire information, to process information, to hold information, reuse information has grown dramatically. Accordingly, their power has grown dramatically. The power of governments over individuals has grown. That's their capacity to influence your life should they choose to do so. That doesn't mean that we've already lost our freedoms, but we're closer to losing our freedoms and under bad conditions we could very quickly lose our freedoms because of this relative power dynamic. 
So this is the information they have about you, just, just illustrative purposes, these, these images. I want to do a little test of the information you have about government and challenge you just a little bit. This is a, a little bit hard to read, but it's H.R. 26. Does anybody know the significance of H.R. 26, a bill in, in Congress? I don't see any hands going up. H.R. 26 is the first law that the new 114th Congress passed. It's now Public Law 114.1. It's the Terrorism Risk Insurance Program Reauthorization Act of 2015. No hands went up. None of you knew about this law passing. So we, and that's not a fault of, of you, we in the society have little access to information about what the government's doing. It's not in the air like other information. You don't need to read this. This is the CBO study of, 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 uh, of the new law. It has about $3.6 billion in spending in it about $4 billion in revenues, so it's actually about revenue neutral. But the average, the cost is about $65 per average family in the U.S. I'm willing to wager that most of the people in this room are a little above average. So I want you to know that in the first week, Congress went into your pocket and took out, let's say, $120, $180. Bless you if it was $500, because you pay that much in taxes. And you basically didn't know about it. That reflects the power imbalance because of the information imbalance between you and the government. Now here's one more, one more item. If you, if you didn't know about Public Law 114.1, you probably don't know who the five members of Congress are that voted against it, but I'll tell you who they are. Justin Amash from Michigan, Thomas Massey from Kentucky, Jim Sensenbrenner from, from Wisconsin, Walter Jones from North Carolina, and Tom McClintock from California. Good on you. Now compare the information I just shared with you about information you have relating to other aspects of your life. A lot of you probably know that Santa Ana winds are predicted for later today in this area. Not, not Los Angeles proper, but all around the, the, the basin there's going to be Santa Ana winds. Because data about the weather is very available to you. You can't turn on the TV at certain times of night without learning about what's going on with the weather. In the newspaper, there's incredibly detailed information about the weather appearing in graphs and charts. Sports, on the lower left right there, detailed information in newspapers. People are talking about it all the time. Let's get a show of hands of people who know what the pounds per square inch of a National Football League football is supposed to be. <laughs> We all know that, but we don't know about the laws that Congress is passing. Likewise, our investments. We know detailed information. A lot of facts per square inch on the, on, the, on, the, on the pages of the newspaper are available to the public, are consumed by the public. It's all around you, but it's not the same with government. So in an important sense, we're losing. We're losing power vis-a-vis -vis government over time. Now at Cato, we're trying to, to rectify those imbalances some. And some of it is with direct advocacy. For example, uh, for year, several years now, I've been working to file briefs in the Supreme Court in Fourth Amendment cases to, to write the, the court's interpretation of the Fourth Amendment. I don't know how many of you came into the hotel, drove in, and, and got your car searched um, based on no suspicion. Uh, I was a little troubled by that last night. I don't think it's a, it's a winning case if we were to take it up. But, uh, but I sat there gritting my teeth uh, while that happened to me. And then I came in and registered, and the, the registration process included the hotel asking me for my home address and home phone number. We're in Beverly Hills, 
But in Los Angeles uh, proper, collecting that information is mandated by law. And the hotels in Los Angeles have to maintain that information for at least 90 days in the lobby or an office adjacent to the lobby and make information like that about all their guests available to any law enforcement officer for any reason or no reason. No warrant, no subpoena, no exigent circumstances, no emergency required. Any law enforcement officer can get any information, they get, can get this information about any guests in a hotel in Los Angeles. That case is being contested in the Supreme Court. We're going to file at the end of next week in that case, arguing that the Supreme Court should apply the terms of the Fourth Amendment rather than the doctrines that have built them up over years, the reasonable expectation of privacy doctrine, which honestly does us no good, um, looking for those searches and seizures, and that is a search, and seeing whether it's reasonable. Is it reasonable to have hotels collect information about all of us and make that available to law enforcement for any reason or no reason? We're going to argue that it's not. And that's one of several cases that we filed in to try to improve the strength of the Fourth Amendment so that we can be better protected. My colleague Julian Sanchez, in particular, is working on statutory fixes to what we know is going on. Uh, the USA Freedom Act was introduced by Jim Sensenbrenner. He announced it at the Cato Institute at our NSA conference, which is now in its second year and was really an excellent conference this year. Julian deserves a great deal of credit for that. Other legislative reforms that we're working on. And another, another project that's a little more obscure that tries to write this information imbalance is called our Deep Bills Project. We're going into the legislation in Congress and we're, doing, we're abstracting it. I don't expect you to be able to read this, but this is an, appro this is an appropriation. This is language that would spend, spend your taxpayer money. But it's marked up in a way that computers can automatically recognize that spending. Computers can go through all the bills in Congress, recognize when spending is proposed, tell you who's proposing the spending. Compare that to votes on the spending so that Americans will have better access to information about who's spending their money, what the votes were, who did what when. So maybe that information will start to get into the air, the way information about the pounds per square inch of, of professional footballs is in the air. It's coming into use on Wikipedia. The, the info, info boxes that deal with legislation are populated with data that we're producing. Uh, the New York Times uses the data to show you what agencies and bureaus are referred to in legislation. My own site, Washington Watch, uses the data to, to make more available what it, what, uh, what's going on in Congress. GovTrack, which is really the leading uh, private transparency site, uses our data. This is one of my favorites. The Washington Examiner has a page with, that covers the latest spending bills. It'll show people, and this, when this came online six, eight months ago, uh, it showed people for the first time ever what's going on in Congress as far as spending. You can sort through by state, by member, by size of, of spending proposal, what's going on in terms of congressional spending. I think it's kind of shocking. It should be a little shocking to people that we didn't just know about that already. The government's a little bit back in the dark ages and it's, the information about what it's doing isn't that available. Legislative Information Institute at Cornell University is making good information available about what's going on in terms of changes to the U.S. Code. So the, the ideal is that our access to information catches up our relative power vis-a-vis -vis organizations, and particularly governments, catches up, and liberty flourishes. It'll just be a couple more weeks, and then we can all. <laughs> Listen, thank you very much. I appreciate, uh, I appreciate your attendance here, your support of Cato very much. I think we've got a few minutes for, for Q&A. I'd be happy to uh, discuss any of this or any other in my, my broad uh, area of information policy studies with you. So um, I'll take this gentleman over here. Oh, there's a microphone. Some folks might uh, might need to hear you. And if any other hand goes up, uh, you can hail one of the one of the microphone holders, and we'll take you next. 
at Please, the sir. end, you were commenting that the uh, government is in the dark ages and getting information out. Why would the government want to get information out? If it's not transparent, we don't know, we can't vote in favor or against it. It's favorable to the government and the representatives, isn't it? It is. I think, uh, I think a lot of advocates for transparency in Washington think that the, that the government will come forward with information uh, out of you know, the goodness of its heart. Uh, most politicians will agree, and transparency is widely agreed upon as a, as a goal that the government should, should, should uh, deliver on. Uh, but ultimately, they'll be shamed into producing transparency. Uh, I produced studies of transparency, how it can be done, how well the government's doing, but we didn't stop with that. We went ahead and started producing the data. Uh, we're going to go ahead and talk to the Library of Congress and say, you should be producing us data. Honestly, the House Clerk's Office is, is, being, is being pretty productive. They're working too slow. They're not doing enough. But the Republican leadership in the House has been after this for years, and things are slowly improving there. Um, so, yeah, it's not going to be a natural thing that flows from government. We're going to have to pull it out of government. But I think we can get it. And once we get it, it's an expectation, it's a demand they can't go back on. Uh, they're not going to stop publishing PDF documents of, of, of uh, bills that they started in 1995. Once we get more data flowing out there, it's going to stay. Another question over here. Thank you. The vernacular would be entitled the Internet Takeover. And as you know, President Obama is supporting it. So is Russia, and so is China. The Washington Post did a wonderful answer. It was about 800 words. Could you give us some background on that? I'm sure you know more than the others. Well, there are two forms of Internet takeover. I mean, there's always, there's always someone, somebody trying to do something to the Internet. Uh, one you might be referring to is net neutrality. Uh, that's the idea that uh, old-style public utility regulation should be imported into the Internet so that, so that it's treated like, you know, sewer service or water service or the postal system. Everybody gets some, but it's not very good. Uh, naturally, we think that, uh, that, uh, that Internet service should be competitive. Uh, that'll bring investment in. Uh, that'll cause our Internet nationwide to get better and better. The other takeover, though, is sort of at the core functioning of the Internet. Uh, that's, that's the effort on the part of the International Telecommunications Union to try to take over some of the uh, essential functioning, the naming and numbering that, that allows Internet protocol numbers to be recognized as Cato.org. Uh, getting into that technical functioning and using that as a way to regulate the content of the Internet, what can be said, what can be said about national leaders uh, trying, to, trying to prevent dissidents from, from using the Internet for their purposes. There are constant efforts on the part of governments to, to get a hold of the Internet because it's a very, very powerful institution. Luckily, the design of the Internet, well, John Gilmore, who's a, who's a, a technologist and, and liberty advocate, says that the Internet recognizes censorship as damage and routes around it. So the Internet's pr pretty immune to this kind of thing. That doesn't mean they're not going to keep trying. Yes. I may be out of time, so thank you very much again. I'll be around the rest of the afternoon to talk some more. Thank you. Thanks, Jim. Um, our next uh, speaker is Emily Eakins. Emily is a research uh, fellow at the Cato Institute and the polling director at the Reason Foundation, where she leads the Reason Group Public Opinion Research Project. Her research uh, primarily focuses on uh, public opinion, uh, her, uh, on American politics, including the Tea Party movement, uh, survey methodology, and political economy. 
In particular, uh, Emily studies how individuals' expectations of their own economic future shape their political behavior and attitudes towards government. She's discussed her research in many media. Uh, she's been published in the Washington Post, the uh, Politico, the Wall Street Journal, and the Washington Times. Emily is working on her PhD, uh, thesis in political science at the University of California in Los Angeles. And the title of her talk today, Are Millennials More Libertarian? A very important issue. So Emily, thank you for being here. Thank you. It's so great to be with you uh, this afternoon. Uh, let's see, make sure I've got this here. So, an important topic today. Millennials, are they the libertarian future? Now this might seem a little surprising. A lot of people will point out that millennials overwhelmingly voted for a Democrat, President Barack Obama, in, in both 2008 and 2012. And survey data tells us that they're more than twice as likely as older Americans to identify as liberal, and many have dubbed them the most pro-government generation in years. So how could they possibly, possibly be a libertarian future? Well, today I'm gonna to discuss some of the data. Something has perplexed scholars of public opinion, particularly of millennials. When they look at liberal millennials, they're finding something that distresses them. They're finding that they're more interested in the values of personal autonomy than those of economic redistribution. They're finding what they, what actually those at the Pew Research Center call a libertarian streak, that they're very wary of government. What's happening? Um, what I'd like to argue today is that people have been confined by a left-right paradigm. They assume that people are only left or right. But at the Cato Institute, how the Cato Institute understands that people don't just fit into those two neat little boxes. Excuse me. Oh, uh, pardon me. At a recent, uh, um, on a recent poll that I conducted with Reason Foundation, we asked millennials this question. Would you vote for a fiscally conservative, socially liberal candidate, allowing them to think outside the box? And what we found was that 53%, a majority, said they would consider such a candidate. But I'd like to point out those who were most supportive. Now, obviously, those who self-identified libertarians were at the top of the list here. But notice who's second and third. Self-identified liberals and moderates and progressives. And actually, the lowest on the list were self-identified conservatives. So what's happening? I would argue that if we're going to investigate if millennials are a libertarian future, we need to be looking at three things in particular. One, are they shifting left on social issues? Are they shifting right on economics? And are they distrustful or confident in government? I like data, and we're gonna be going through some of the data that's already available about what young people think to investigate this. The first, on the poll that I conducted with Reason Foundation, we found that 62% say they are liberal on social issues and 49% said that they were liberal on economic issues. And this is gonna be a theme that I'm going to, that you'll see throughout my presentation today, is that they are social liberals and fiscal centrists. 
I don't think I need to spend much time going through the social issues. I think we all know that young people are more socially liberal. They're more in favor of legalizing <coughs> uh, gay marriage, marijuana. Notice even among young Republicans, 54% favor legalizing same-sex marriage. They favor legalizing a number of things that, in fact, liberal cities have tried to ban, uh, like <coughs> Uh, plastic bags, trans fats, large sugary drinks, um, th things like that. They tend to favor personal autonomy and choice over regulation. I think where we need to spend most of our time, though, is on the economic issues, because this is where most people are arguing young people are turning to government. But what you'll find in the data, particularly data conducted by the Pew Research Center, is that young people are actually not that different than older Americans when it comes to the economic issues. First, millennials like business. If millennials were far economic leftists, if they were kind of an incarnation of Occupy Wall Street, they would not like, uh, excuse me, they would be significantly different than older generations when it comes to business. But when, as it turns out, they're actually about the same. Millennials are actually more favorable towards um, corporations. When asked if corporations struck a fair balance between the public interests and profits, millennials were in fact more likely to say that corporations did indeed strike a fair balance. If they were economic leftists, they would be more distrustful of corporations. <clears throat> We asked them, to, we, we presented a very uh, straight trade-off. Which is the better system, a free market economy or an economy managed by the government? We stopped using vague terms from the past. We, gave it, we made it very concrete. And when we did that, we found two to one that millennials prefer a free market economy over an economy managed by the government. We also found, or excuse me, actually a number of surveys, I collected a number of surveys and found that millennials were no more likely to favor government regulation of business compared to older generations. Now what some people will tell you is that millennials are a lot more supportive of the social safety net. However, the Pew Research Center found, asking a number of questions, that they were in fact no more likely to favor the social safety net than older people. It's not that they want to abolish it, it's just that they really aren't different. Um, there's been kind of a consensus about what the social safety net needs to look like, and they just aren't different than older people on that issue. <clears throat> One thing where they are different is when it comes to entitlement reform. Young people are actually more supportive of social security reform compared to older people. And what this graph shows you is first we ask them if they favored transitioning people into private accounts. And you do see that a majority of Americans, younger and older, supported such a, such a thing. However, with the polls we conduct, Trade-offs are important. Life is full of trade-offs. So what we did is we asked a follow-up question and said, would you still favor private accounts or allowing people to use private accounts if it resulted in reducing benefits to current seniors. What we found is that for most Americans over 30, that changed their opinion. They said, no, we would no longer favor such a thing. But for millennials, you see a majority still favor such accounts, even if it reduced benefits for older Americans. Do millennials love big government? This is where a lot of uh, <clears throat> the arguments that you heard about millennials being pro-government came from. A couple of years ago, they were significantly more likely to say they favored larger government than older people. But what we're seeing in the last couple of years is a decline. Support for government action among young people seems to be going down. 
a common question asked by a variety of surveys is if the government, uh, to what extent is the government inefficient and wasteful? And that in 2009, only 42% of young people thought the government was wasteful and inefficient. But when we asked it again in 2014 using the exact same question wording, such that the only variable that's changing is time, we found that 66% thought the government was wasteful and inefficient. With time comes knowledge. We also found that support for large government declines with age. You will see that yes, they are more, each generation, each younger generation is a little bit more supportive of, of, of uh, larger government compared to the older one, but as they age, that support declines. This is perhaps the most interesting finding of the survey that I conducted with Reason. If you had to choose, would you rather have a smaller government providing fewer services or a larger government providing more services? This is a common question asked on a number of surveys. And what you find is that millennials say they want a larger government. But when I saw this question, and something you might have noticed too, is that taxes were nowhere mentioned in this question. What does large government even mean? So what we did is we split the sample. To one half, we asked this standard question. To the other half, we added a couple of words. This time we asked, if you had to choose, would you rather have a smaller government providing fewer services with low taxes or a larger government with more services and high taxes, guess what happens? It flips. In fact, I'll just tell you, because we don't have time to go into it, um, there's a significant race gap when you first ask this question between white and non-white millennials. But as soon as you mention taxes, that gap disappears among white, Latino, and Asian millennials and significantly narrows even among black, um, uh, black and, and the other uh, millennials. Support for government action declines with age. We find that as their excuse me, age and income, we find that when you ask, is it government's responsibility to re reduce income differences between those with high incomes and those with low incomes, we, we find that both with age and income, that support declines. And when we ask if government should spend more on financial assistance to the poor, the same thing happens. Support declines as they make more money and as they age. And particularly, you'll notice it's the 40 to, 40 to 60,000 uh, dollar range where this flip tends to occur. That's about the middle class. So what I've argued, so what we've gone through today is are they socially liberal? Yes. Fiscal issues. They're centrist. So far, they really have not differentiated themselves that much from older generations. However, as they get older and as they make more, more money, we do see that they trend more fiscally conservative. And we do see that support for government action is waning. But this isn't enough. We can't just sit back and wait for something to happen. The future is not secure. What needs to occur is arguments need to be made, particularly uh, in the areas of fiscal issues and government action. The arguments need to be made to each generation that individuals and communities provide, uh, create better solutions than government action. And if we can do that, we can win the future. Um, I'd like to open it up for questions. <laughs> That's a very good question. I think it starts with being able to do this kind of research. We need to find out 
where the pressure points are. And I can actually tell you, I didn't mention it today, but I, what we found in the data is that when people said they took economic classes or business classes, they said, I was really, really liberal before I started taking this class, but now I'm becoming more uh, conservative on fiscal issues time and time again. So research will help us uncover what those things are and where we focus. And that tells you something. What are they learning in that economics class that has changed their mind? Um, so we need to identify those things. Um, and I also should say, millennials are typically defined by those born after 1980. Um, I, is there a hand raised over there? Yes. The social security issue is usually framed, turn it on or turn it off. What kind of support do you get from millennials with the idea of phasing it out so that as you are younger and have put less money into it, you get less money back until by the time you reach 30 or 35, you're putting no money in and you're taking no money out. <clears throat> to be honest, what, I, what we can tell from the data thus far is that millennials just aren't thinking that much about entitlements and social security, that it's just so far in the future. And they seem to be very open to change, particularly those um, who are disproportionately from um, immigrant families. And I think what that suggests is that when you don't have personal relatives that are um, you know, taking Social Security or Medicare, it's a lot easier to change the system. So it might even be that kind of the influx of immigration that we've seen over the past couple of decades might actually help us reform <laughs> these entitlement systems. Yes? Um, I'm just wondering in terms of the, you talked about the explanation of why their opinion changed and you suggested that it was because they were becoming older and employed. But millennials, I guess, as a demographic currently today, are some of the most underemployed that they've ever been. In fact, unemployment rates are much higher for millennials than they are for almost any other age group. And I'm wondering, is it that they're older and employed or older and unemployed that's changing their <laughs> opinion? Um, I think you bring up an excellent point. It's something, um, that um, I, I've personally looked into quite a bit, we're finding that millennials are um, less are getting married later, buying homes later, having kids later, and all of those variables seem to predict, uh, in particular, fiscal conservatism. Um, and so if all those things are delayed, uh, that means that experiences that could lead one to, to various conclusions is delayed. <laughs> um, so what that suggests is that it, just because those things are delayed doesn't mean they'll, they'll never happen. But when they do happen, um, there's reason to believe that those experiences will have a similar effect on them that, that just like they've had on older generations. But it just is, might be taking more time. It's very heartening to hear that the millennials are, in principle, in abstract, uh, more sympathetic with free market, less sympathetic with government, the economy. It just seems whenever you get to any specific application of it, they don't understand or can't follow through the principle. You, you ask them, oh, would you like to have minimum wages be higher? Yeah, why not? Would you like to uh, make sure that people have more guarantees of better health care, more better job conditions, the maternity leave, whatever? Uh, sure, why not? It sounds great. Wait a minute. You're contradicting yourself there. You said you didn't want the government to control everything. Oh, well, they I'm not really thinking about that. So isn't there a, just a big disconnect because they won't follow through the general principle to any particular, you can always lose on the specific case uh, because they're not connecting it to the general principle. 
the greatest paradox of public opinion. Um, I think that what you're identifying, we see with older generations as well. Um, and that's what I think is, is so in important to point out about this group, is that yes, they'll say, let's raise the minimum wage, but so does, you know, in equal proportion do older generations. I think what's important to point out as well is that millennials will say things like, oh, I, socialism sounds okay. Um, they're less averse to socialism, the word, than older generations. But then when you ask them, how would you feel about the government running more of our businesses? I mean, you think the government maybe should be doing that? Oh, no. No, that's a terrible idea. And so you see that when it, they actually see the application in their own lives, they respond fairly predictably. I, um, are we, one more. Okay, one more question. Hello. Okay. Uh, I might have missed it. What was the source of your data? Uh, what population was uh, surveyed? Uh, very good question. Thank you. Um, so the survey that I conducted with Reason Foundation uh, was conducted uh, of 2,000 respondents in March of 2014, and the other data was collected by the Pew Research Center from a number of surveys that they've conducted over the past five years. Um, usually with population sizes of, um, they, they would do national surveys with a couple of thousand, of which you know, 20% or so were this millennial generation. Thank you. Thanks, Emily. Um, it is uh, my pleasure to uh, introduce our next speak speaker, <coughs> Alex Norasta. Alex is the Immigration Policy Analyst at the Cato Institute Center for Global Liberty and Prosperity. His work has appeared in the Wall Street Journal, the Houston Chronicle, the Boston Globe, the Santa Jose Mercury, the Richmond Times, the Huffington Post, the Journal of Economic Behavior and Organization, and he's been on TV everywhere because he is the voice, I think, of reason in the debate on immigration, and you'll see that in his studies. Um, Alex has uh, received his BA in economics from George Mason and an MS in economic history from the London School of Economics. So it's a pleasure to introduce Alex. Welcome. Thank you, John, and thank you to the rest of you for coming here today. Now, immigration, I think, is one of the most complicated and misunderstood topics in public policy today. So it's vital to begin with what the immigration system looks like. <laughs> now, Associate Justice Harry E. Hall Jr. said that the immigration system is second in complexity only to the income tax. And I'm sure you all have intimate familiar with that. Looking at this system right now, you can run through the uh, how to come here legally in the United States. There are basically four ways. One, be closely related to a current American. Two, be a high-skilled worker. You have to be one out of 140,000. Only 7% of you can come from one country. The company that sponsors you has to pay 10 dollars to $35,000. A lot of other regulations. That's the second way. And the third and fourth is they have a visa lottery, about 50000 a year, and there's a few slots for refugees. If you notice, the one category that's missing is for a low-skilled worker who doesn't have any family here. There is no green card category for a low-skilled worker who doesn't have family. Now, I'll say that again because it's vital. There is no green card available for a low-skilled worker unless they're closely related to an American. Pushing this system backwards in time so that it applied to our ancestors who came here 
none of us would be here today because virtual, virtually none of us would apply or fit into any one of these categories. Now, it's important to understand why do people want to come here? Now, economists have this complicated metric they use called a place premium. And what this is, is it measures the economic gain for a worker coming to the United States from these particular countries, standardizing for worker characteristics like education, et cetera. So your typical Mexican with a high school degree can expect a three-fold increase in wages just by coming to the United States. Guatemalan, three-fold. Indian, six. Vietnamese, six. Haitian, tenfold. The median across the developing world is a four-fold increase in income. Now, I spend a lot of time talking to college students about these facts before they've entered the job market. And I say, when you enter the job market, you're going to be willing to move across the US for a 20% increase in income. These people are facing magnitudes far greater than that. But because of this, there is no legal way for them to take advantage of it. So what does this mean for us? As economists will tell you, productivity is what determines wages. And these immigrants are more productive here. That's why they have higher wages. And we know why. You know, capitalism, free markets, rule of law, security that goes along with that allows these workers to be more productive than in their home countries. So when they come here, it's not a redistribution. It's not like we're making poor countries worse off and the US better off. We're making the whole world better off because these folks are so much more productive here. They can make so much more stuff, goods and services that we want. So as an economist, we like to mess around with models a lot. We like to ask crazy questions. Like what would happen tomorrow if a radical policy, global open borders, what if that happened tomorrow? Just asking the question. And anybody from any country can move to any other country and, and work legally. What would happen? Well, the estimates of the model is that global GDP would increase between 50 and 150%, which is 35 to $105 trillion in annual extra growth per year. Even in Washington, those are big numbers. <laughs> to put that, for those of you who understand finance and know present value, the value of this, way, of this change in policy is equal to about $800 trillion in terms of economic growth going forward. An enormous, enormous gain. So I want to talk about two topics that I think are particularly interested or uh, uh, relevant for libertarians. One is what to do about the welfare state. And two is, what's the sensible sort of middle ground solution that we can do to improve the immigration system? So about the welfare state, you know, we're, we're all, I think, opponents of the welfare state. Um, but there are a few legal issues that we need to understand before we talk about what to do about this. Under current law, if you're a legal immigrant, a legal one, on a green card, you have no access to means-tested welfare for the first five years that you're here. There are some small exceptions in the states here and there. There are exceptions for emergency medical care, but it's highly restricted. For illegal immigrants have no access to means-tested welfare in the United States, with the exception of emergency medical care. If you show up at a hospital, the law is everybody has to treat you. When you compare welfare usage for poor immigrants compared to poor Americans, which is the relevant metric, you find that poor immigrants, even when they're eligible, vastly underused compared to poor Americans. In fact, so much more so that if a poor Americans 
used Medicaid at the same rate and the same benefit levels as poor immigrants, the program would be 42% smaller. And the real kicker, and this is what made me mad, the real kicker is there's no difference in healthcare outcomes. So it lets you know what they're really spending money on Medicaid on. Another thing to think about, the welfare state is primarily designed to help sick, elderly women, primarily. Sick, Medicaid, Medicare. Elderly, Social Security, Medicare, women. Programs like TANF, food stamps, women's infants and children are designed for single women who have kids whose husbands or boyfriends have left. However, most immigrants are healthy young men. So there is a fundamental disconnect between who the welfare state just tries to help and who the immigrants are. Now, if you're like me and you are opposed to welfare and you think every dollar spent on welfare is a waste regardless, there is a way to fix this program. It's to deny non-citizens, all non-citizens, access to welfare. Cato is the only think tank in Washington, D.C. that has written a detailed policy analysis of how to actually build a wall around the welfare state. We cited the specific statutes that need to be changed and how to change them. And we wrote this, and Senator Rand Paul has taken that and rented it into a 15-page piece of legislation. He took all of our suggestions except for one into uh, legislation that he is going to submit when immigration comes up again in a big way. It is, uh, we at Cato, I like to use immigration as an argument against welfare. I do not like to use welfare as an argument against immigration. And that's the way that I view it. Second, what about sensible reform? There are about 11 to 12 million illegal immigrants in the United States. A bare majority of them are from Mexico. How did we get here to this program, or to where we are today? Well, and, and how do we solve it? Well, previous issues with illegal immigration point to a solution. In 1952, there were 2 million illegal immigrants in the United States, almost all of them from Mexico. But by 1953, 1954, that population decreased by 90%. What happened? Well, what they did was they created a guest worker visa program called the Bracero. They made it very easy for these workers to get a legal work visa. And they made it very easy for farmers, to, and farmers and other employers to hire them. As a result, Border Patrol rounded up unlawful immigrants, drove them down to the border, made them take one step into Mexico, one step back into the US, handed them a work visa, drove them back to their farms that day. It's called walking around the statute, is what they called it. Uh, they even went to job sites and legalized people on the spot, handed them a temporary work visa, one year, renewable, not a path to citizenship. As a result, by 1955, the illegal immigrant population dropped by 90%. Cross-border flows dropped by 95%. And what's remarkable is that the size of Border Patrol dropped during this time period by 25%. When this began, there were about 1,200 or so Border Patrol agents. By the end of it, there were about 900. So they didn't need to put troops on the border. They didn't need to increase the size of the border bureaucracy. All they needed were better rules that made it possible to follow the law for the, illegal, for the immigrants themselves, as well as for the American employers. What we have today is we have the enforcement apparatus. What we do not have is the legal way for them to come. And if we create that legal way to come, we can reduce the size of the problem dramatically and allow security resources to be focused on actual threats. The real criminals, the, 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 the potential murderers, the rapists, the security, national security threats. I contend that every single dollar the government 
spends on trying to stop a tomato picker or a landscaper from coming across as a dollar wasted that should be going to legitimate security threats. And after this program was created and the illegal immigration, immigrant population fell dramatically, Congress had a lot of hearings. And they asked, you know, what did you do? And they said, oh, we did the Bracero program, we did this visas, it really helped. And then the Congress, of course, because they want the impossible, they asked, well, can you do it without Bracero? Could you do it without a guest worker visa program? And the people in charge of the INS at the time said, we can't do the impossible. And what we see now, since the end of this program in 1965, is them trying to do the impossible. And they can't do it. Conclusion, immigration reform is good for Americans and the economy. There are some small areas that I think we need to address, like uh, the welfare issue. But we can have the good. We can have a functional immigration system while avoiding the bad of welfare problems and other issues like that. So thank you very much for your time, and I look forward to any questions you might have. You're right here. Alex, did I understand you correctly that uh, hypothetically, if you completely eliminated cross-border uh, restrictions, that the world GDP would double approximately? It would approximately double, between 50 and 150%. And as you may know, GDP is an annual figure of extra production. This isn't like a one-shot-in-the-arm boost. It is higher than it would be in every year after that. So the present value of that is close to a quadrillion dollars. Now, I can tell you for sure, even in Washington, a quadrillion is a lot. Um, but there is, you'll talk to any policy person and they'll tell you that their issue is more important than other issues. That's just how it works. But there's no other policy change around the world that can be made that will have such a significant impact on global GDP growth as this one change. Economists across the board, left-wing, right-wing, centrists, all agree um, that immigration is good for the economy, it's good for the immigrants, it's good for the people in our country. The only question is how much? And this is the typical answer. <laughs> or back there, yeah. I've heard Ed Crane before um, advocate building a wall around the welfare system. It sounds good in principle, but since children have been the hook on which a great many welfare programs and other forms of redistribution have been built, how do you sell this? How do, you, how do we explain it person to person uh, when it sounds like it means denying aid to innocent children? Uh, fantastic question. Um, the, if you take a look at polls done by either Rasmussen um, or, or other organizations that have polled this topic, um, it's already a majority position to do this, uh, to do this reform. It's already a popular position. Um, most people, uh, in the same way that people do not want to give too much foreign aid to foreign countries, even centrist or, or, or a lot of liberal voters don't want to do that, uh, people do not want to give welfare benefits to most immigrants. Now we already have a f an okay wall around the welfare state. It works fairly well. We can go further, but it's already a popular position amongst uh, the majority of Americans uh, who have been polled on this issue. So it's merely 
combining it at the right time so that we can get it past uh, Congress. Uh, right there. Alex, did your policy initiative look at the uh, application of the 14th Amendment uh, citizenship for children born illegals in this country? Uh, so I've done just a very little bit of research about birthright citizenship. Uh, and to give background, it's uh, the idea that if you're born here and the government has jurisdiction over you, and the government does have jurisdiction over legal immigrants, that's why it's able to deport them, uh, you're automatically a citizen. 14th Amendment is a codification of the old English common law system that goes back about 800 years. Um, what we see is in countries that don't have birthright citizenship is that the second generation that are born there that don't get citizenship off the bat do not feel like that is their country. They do not assimilate culturally or economically, and they're much more likely to join radical political movements. So when you take a look at Germany and Japan, where there are large populations of people in the third or fourth generation who are the kids of illegal immigrants who aren't citizens, they're much more likely to become communists, Islamists, or other radical political ideologies, and they have much lower incomes than the people around them because of this issue. They don't learn their native, the languages they're supposed to, et cetera. We don't necessarily have those problems in the United States, and I will submit that one reason why is because the second generation are citizens regardless of how their parents got here. So I, I think that's the second greatest achievement of the Republican Party is put it, passing the 14th Amendment for that very reason. Right here. Alex, when you say almost all economists agree, it sounds an awful lot like almost <laughs> all scientists agree. How do you know? Uh, so there are polls done by the University of Chicago Economics Department where they send out uh, this survey data to PhD economists across the United States and the world, and they ask questions uh, similar to the Pew questions that Emily uh, talked about, where they ask them about this stuff. One of the main reasons I know this is because I spend a lot of time reading these very boring and dry academic articles that try to find out what economists have found on this issue. Uh, and what you will find is even the most skeptical economists of immigration admit that it's good for the economy and good for Americans. So um, economists also love to go against the grain. It's probably the most politically incorrect subject in academia today. They would love to find that immigration is bad because it would mean that their careers would be boosted dramatically. Uh, the fact that they don't uh, tells me something. So on a macro basis, I get it's like, why, why is free trade good? Of course, if labor moves around, economic prosperity is going to be better. But on a micro basis, as long as the immigration system is based primarily on family reunification, isn't it a bad deal when you just factor in the public school system? So that's a great question. Uh, one of the um, the three, one of the big areas I focus my academic research on, because I try to publish a decent amount of academic papers and book chapters is issues like that, like how does it affect the fiscal uh, costs and benefits of the United States. And when you take a look at something like the public school system, you have to take a look at the costs that are imposed, but also the taxes that are paid over the life a lifetime of those students to see what the net fiscal impact is. Because if you just take a look at the time period for the students, then all of us are a dramatic fiscal drain. I mean, if you, can't, if you stop counting your fiscal impact by the time you're 18, I, I hate to say it, if that's the way you view it, as some very bad studies do view it, then all of us are a waste. But that's clearly not true. So you have to count the entire life period. So when you do that over a significant period of time and you take a look at it, 
the net fiscal impact for immigration in the United States on the state and federal level is about zero. Statistically insignificant from zero. A huge study done by the OECD uh, last year, uh, two years ago that sort of took a look at this issue uh, did find that there are costs in the short run to that. But the long run benefits inc uh, decrease government deficits by somewhere around 0.03% of GDP. So it's hardly going to plug the budget, de uh, budget deficit. I mean, that's, that's, that's pocket change compared to the government uh, and what they spend. But it's not a long-run fiscal drain uh, as it's been played out. Uh, yes? The Heritage Foundation was here in town recently. And the head argued that GDP would fall precipitously <laughs> as a result of immigration. Where have they gone awry? Uh, they, they've stopped listening to themselves, actually. Um, one, of, <laughs> one of the great things that I like about Heritage is they really made famous the notion of dynamic scoring. The fact that any change we make to the economy is going to have a result in the economy, and we need to see how tax revenues result. So what they are famous for is when a liberal would say, we want to double taxes, they could double the revenue. Heritage would just say, no, the economy is dynamic. People will change their behavior. You're going to get a lot less than that. Well, they seem to have forgotten that with their 2013 study on that. And, um, you know, Cato was in the lead in criticizing that study. I actually published, I heard that Robert Rector was going to publish it uh, in advance, so I wrote a pre-buttle. That's my contribution to the English language, <laughs> uh, which forced him to revise it um, and uh, uh, delayed uh, the, uh, the, the release of that paper. And what's notable is every single free market, conservative, libertarian think tank or academic who studies this issue slammed their research as being very poor, as being static, and as not taking into account how immigrants actually affect the economy. Yes, sir. You know, Alex, how you are going to reconcile this, what you said, with a small, you know, currently example of EU mm -hmm. in 1980s, from 1980s, practically unlimited immigration, practically open borders. How come it didn't become a golden, cont golden continent <laughs> in the world? So, uh, great question. The there are, I think, two aspects to that that I'd like to answer. The first is what's called the Schengen Agreement. It was a treaty that was put in place in the early 90s that allows free movement of people who are a member of an EU country. So somebody who's Greek can go work in France, and the fact that they have a Greek passport is good enough. Like, they don't need to prove anything else. Then there's the issue of Im uh, immigration from outside of the, and that's been good. The economic data of that is that it has boosted, but because most European countries are not that different in income, basically the, from the poorest to the wealthiest, it's about a 2.5%, I'm sorry, a 2.5-fold increase in income, so it's not that big of a difference. Uh, because of that, the economic gains have been relatively small. Then there's the issue of immigration from outside the EU. And there's two primary reasons about why they have very different problems than what we do with immigration. We all, see, we all know what we're talking about when we say these different problems. One, immediate access to welfare for all these groups. So the two problems with that is one, they get shuffled into government housing. They don't have to work. They're all amongst each other. 
Governments in the EU for a long time have done forced segregation of immigrants. So Turkish guest workers in Germany were forced to live in barracks for 25 years. They had to have bags packed at all times. And then the government said, you know, in the late 80s, oh, you can live outside now. So you had this forced non-assimilation for a while. That's a problem. So that's, that's one problem is the welfare. The other one is the, uh, and because of that, they attract a different type of immigrant than the U.S. does. People who are more willing to want to go on welfare, which is not good for assimilation at all or economic achievement. The second issue is because America, and it's a cliche, but it's true, is a country of immigrants and has been for a while, we have a conception of what it means to be American that is based on a civic identification with this country and government and our history and English. And that's about it. In Europe, in most countries, it's a blood borders culture definition of what it means to be French, for instance. If you're not descended from that specific tribe that conquered that area at some point in the past, there's almost nothing you can do to be called French. You can call yourself French. If I were to move there today and to uh, naturalize and to speak the language and everything else and I call myself French, they would correct me. And they would likely correct my kids if they were born there too, and my kids' kids. Uh, we don't have that here. We actually have the opposite pressure. When people don't call themselves American when they're immigrants, we get a little offended and try to correct them. I don't know how you correct that cultural aspect, but fixing the welfare state is really easy. Thank you. Thanks, Alex. Uh, it's a tough issue, but Alex has a tremendous amount of insight, and he was around to ask, uh, answer any questions if you want to ask him one-on-one. -on -one. So we're now going to take a break. We have a reception outside. We've got to let the uh, staff come in and set the tables. You can leave your stuff at the table, and you will come back to the same place, and the reception will be about 20, 25 minutes. <laughs>